Welcome to Spiritual Psychology. My name is Renee LaValle McKenna. I'm a therapist and healer in San Francisco. And today we're going to talk about the spirituality of food with a good friend of mine, James Faber. James has a long career in food as a chef and entrepreneur. He's run dozens of restaurants. He's owned more than 10 restaurants. He's owned catering companies, bakeries, food trucks. He's worked in coffee. And now he's working on a project he calls a cloud kitchen. James, welcome to Spiritual Psychology. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So you have to tell me what a cloud kitchen is. Well, cloud kitchen is an answer to a problem in the food industry where there are all sorts of uh, really young, talented um, chefs and restaurateurs who have a difficult time getting into the industry because they can't find space or when they want to grow their company from, say, a traditional food truck or, uh, or restaurant into catering or uh, other types of uh, wholesale products, they create a communal, uh, we create a communal space where people can come and work together and use the kitchen as they need it. We essentially run it and then they utilize the facility as they need it. So at, at any given time, there could be several or even more than 10 different restauranters working in the same kitchen space. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about food and community and food as service. And it feels like, how does that play into that idea for you? Well, I mean, again, you know, there's, if there's one common denominator that I see in life going all the way back to my earliest childhood, it's that, you know, food really is, are the breaks of our day and the bookends to our weeks. And, uh, and it's such a huge community uh, where anybody who lives on the grid relies on other people to procure, to grow, to produce, cook food, which we share. So to me, food defines community. It is the one thing that everyone has in common. You know, it reminds me of, I talk a lot about this really powerful retreat that I did with Thich Nhat Hanh about 20 years mm. ago. He's a Buddhist monk. And it's kind of a funny story because it was a silent retreat, but I didn't know it was a silent retreat. And you know <laughs> me, like being silent no, I, was quite a thing. But anyway, the central point of it was mindfulness and really being present and one of the places that was a huge learning curve for me was to practice mindful eating mm -hmm. and we ate vegetarian because it's actually much easier to be mindful eating if you aren't eating dead animals <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about a lot of interbeing there was this beautiful prayer which I need to get so that because I refer to it a lot um, and it talks about all of the, to really be not just present with the food in the moment as you're eating it and the flavors and the texture, but also to be aware of all the work that went into it, all the people that produced the food, how many hands touched the food, how many, you know, thinking about it in the earth and the sun and the rain and our interbeing, not just with the earth, but with all of the people that we never see who have interacted to bring us the celery or the oatmeal or, you know, whatever it is that we're eating. So that idea of into being is a different yes. way to talk about. For sure. And what's interesting is uh, my wife is uh, very, uh, 
in tune with Buddhist ways. And we've done multiple uh, retreats. And one of the exercises that we do, and she she frequently references, is the idea of just taking a grape or whatever. And then when, we, when you really are present with the grape and you realize everything, how much more fulfilling that is and how we can actually eat less food when we're mindful of it and feel equally nourished. The idea that we just need more and more and more, I think represents our disconnect with the food system as opposed to when, you know, when we really understand how this incredible act of trust lives in our daily lives, we find that less can be more. How is food an act of trust? When you think about all the opportunities that things could possibly go wrong, like say we buy organic products and the person isn't uh, necessarily adhering to organic practices, or we trust uh, a chef to prepare things properly and handle his foods properly, we rely on maybe a significant other or a friend to obtain food for us that we're trusting that we're going to be able to eat later in the day when we need it. I mean, trust is probably the number one ingredient in uh, in cooking. That's so interesting. I've never thought of trust in relationship with food. And I switch the word love often with that. And I talk about that uh, in my, my kitchens and um, with my family, that love is the number one ingredient. So when I'm super mindful of the people that I'm caring for, when I'm preparing food, whether it's someone that's paying me or whether it's a friend or family member, that's my way of showing love, my way of nurturing. So how do you teach your employees about love and how do you use love in your own cooking? Honestly, uh, the word love is the main ingredient is echoed by me constantly. And when uh, anyone, whether it's an employee or a client or anybody uh, uh, says something about this uh, dish being particularly great, I say love is the number one ingredient. And And then I also, my other thing is I say, you know, thank the plant, thank the animal. Because really, I'm just the guardian of that, the way I see it. So if I go out and procure the best cut of meat, which I had absolutely nothing to do with producing, actually, the farmer has very little to do with producing as well. It's my job to make sure that that particular ingredient is showcased to the best of my ability. So who is the producer? Well, uh, you could call it anything you want, higher power, God, uh, life. Um, Something that I I always think of and I always remind people about is that in that primordial ooze where the first cell divided, uh, that first cell, all life came from that. Plant life, animal life, all this stuff. So we're all interconnected by that. And how do you infuse, I mean, it sounds like this is a really conscious practice for you to bring love and to teach that and to hold that as the main ingredient. How do you infuse your food and your businesses with love? Well, first thing, uh, it's really important, I I feel, to have um, the right environment to produce food and that it's it's free of stress. and, And growing up on a farm, where we raised animals, same thing, that the best, the best meats are produced in stress-free environments. That allows us not to be uh, distracted. We can be attentive. 
we also can be, you know, be aware of the need for the love and the attention at that point. So first thing, I really, really try and guard the environments. Like the way I see myself in my in my career is uh, I help produce cultures in kitchens. And then my job is I guard them by creating really good systems that allow people to come and do what they do best. And if that means like getting the best cook possible or the best dishwasher or any, because it's all interreliant and then creating a place where they can really come and work and then go home feeling good about themselves. And And I'm able to do that by having very clear expectations. And then the other part is, you know, I think there's so many nuances uh, to preparing food and procuring food that the variables move constantly. You know, like a recipe needs to be modified all the time. And to allow latitude of people to be creative, to be their own, but also to, to keep that in reign by having a culture of critique, not criticism, where for me, for instance, it, if someone presents me with a plate, or even if I'm at a restaurant and I'm talking to the restaurateur, I, I will often ask them what they think of it before I'll share my own and then really try and understand what you know what they were trying to achieve you know some subtle things such as seasoning or different things or the way textures are put together i might add on but you know for me it's so often trying to connect with that person and their act of generosity of producing something so how do you manage your own stress? You know, we have all these shows now where food is like drama, food <clears throat> drama and food stress and all this like Iron Chef and all these kind of crazy shows. And, and it shows this like intense and people I know who've been high up in the food industry. It can be a really stressful thing. How is food a spiritual practice for you? And how do you manage your stress in these often stressful environments? God, I mean, there's probably not a industry that's more riddled with stress and that relies on unhealthy practices to maintain stress than the food industry. I mean, it's, it is an epidemic in the industry, always has been since the moment I got into it. For me, First thing, I try and be mindful in my life. I try and wake up and I have certain practices that keep me grounded. And part of that's being of service to my family. And part of it is like a whole series of self-care, including exercise, meditation, seek therapy when I need it, so on and so forth. But within the community, it's really important. Like The one thing is really focusing on my core competencies. I find where I get into trouble is when I start to deviate from those. And for instance, I'll give you a great example. Uh, you know, my company grew really quickly. And while it was growing, I found myself doing things that I wasn't necessarily competent or I, I wasn't adequately competent. And some of that had to do with, you know, finance and, and things that, I mean, I was really excited to learn. However, the reason I got into the industry is to connect with others through food. So the further I got away from my core competency, the less time I spent in the kitchen, the more time I spent with spreadsheets, the crazier I became. To the point where last year, you know, I, I was had that profound realization that you know perhaps the company had outgrown my skill sets in this particular part, and it was in time to invite new people 
uh, into the company who had expertise in, in legal matters, financial matters, and HR matters. And that allowed me to reset. And now I'm really, really focused on, uh, on how I can help other food entrepreneurs, other aspiring chefs realize their dreams. And so that's what it's all about. It's about you know, building community, sharing my experience. Like I, I always like to say is I know far more about what not to do than what to do. And it's amazing how gratifying and how I can work for sometimes for 12 hours and have no stress and and be energized. You know, it's just, it's incredible. But I can tell you, uh, my hair is growing back um, after pulling it out in clumps for for many years in just a sheer act of, uh, of willpower. So how do you understand that ability to work for 12 hours and not and and feel joy i i know i feel that in my work because i feel so blessed to have found the work that's that feels like the work i'm supposed to do Mm -hmm. it it resonates with me in all these different i would do it for free i often say but it's not an integrity to do that and you know so how, how does that how does your relationship with food it sounds like returning to your relationship mm-hmm. with food inform that energy that you feel if food is the common theme through my through my days and my weeks and it lives outside of my workplace i'm always connected so it, in my mind it's a matter of integration of personal life individual ambitions and serious work that actually makes money. So those all need to be merged. Um, The idea that I might sit in this control room of my life and have different throttles, uh, that's failed me time and time again. So it starts the day by being aware that I have multiple responsibilities and also, you know, personal ambitions. And that might be uh, you know, huge bike ride or something like that. And that there, I need to create room for all those things. But what I find in doing that is when the opportunity comes to work on a project that I'm really excited about, the rest of my life is stable. My relationships are good. I've communicated to everyone, you know, what's going on. And then I'm able to focus. For instance, you know, we do tremendous events like multi-day events for huge corporations. And it takes months and months to prepare those things. But when that moment comes, everyone in my life, including myself, is aware that this requires my undivided attention. Doesn't mean that I don't think about people. Doesn't mean that I don't check in with my family. Doesn't mean that I don't have other responsibilities to do throughout the day. However, I create room for my my career to be the primary focus for that given amount of time. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about humility Mm. and the humility that you feel around food. I'm curious about that. Well, first thing, it's all about, for me, the interdependence. And, you know, as a chef, for instance, uh, when I mentioned this earlier, uh, when someone thanks me for this beautiful, uh, slow grilled piece of tri-tip that's rubbed with coffee and smoked cayenne and they're like wow that's the greatest piece I, and i i can literally say thank the cow that the reality of the situation is i had very little to do 
I was just the person that touched it last before it went on the plate. The other thing is that I can realize that without food, I have nothing else. And I think that that's something that um, I notice when I'm away from my true nature and I'm caught up in, you know, let's call uh, self-fear where like I'm not going to get what I want and I'm filled with desire and, you know, and I want to get my way that I can look back on those things in hindsight and realize that the most basic need that I, I have, that everyone has, which is to fuel our minds and our bodies, goes straight out the door. So my basic practices that I have uh, in the morning of what I eat, the amount of caffeinated beverages, other means that I use to distract myself, which might be super pleasurable foods that really do not sustain me, All those things flow into me like bad habits. And then it's no surprise to me in hindsight that that only undermines my ability to perform at the at the level that I want spiritually, mentally, physically. So the humility is that I've been given this body. It works by sheer magic. And without it, I am nothing at this point uh you know that i uh, first and foremost i must take care of this body that's been gifted me so that my soul and my brain can function at the level that i wanted to and ultimately you know provide contentment and you know the, the most basic needs that that everybody really seeks on a common common level mm. i'm curious about your eating habits okay so uh, we'll start at the end of the day. I try not to eat after 7 a.m. Uh, I try not to eat before, I mean, after 7 p.m. Uh, I try not to eat in bef- before 7 a.m. So I go, I do a 12-hour fast every single night. I start the day with, uh, I, I like uh, organic grapefruit juice. Doesn't have a lot of sugar, I like taste of it. And I, that's really good that the sugar levels in that go into my system on an empty stomach and just give me a quick punch. Have my cup of coffee, do my morning routine, uh, and then... I'm curious, do you have anything around... Coffee is such a big deal these days, particularly in San Francisco. Do you have a particular coffee that you love? Or, not that we're going to plug anyone, but... Or is there any particular thing around coffee for you? I know you've been in the coffee business... Well, uh, we have a common friend who often says his favorite drink is free. So my, my favorite coffee is free. But no, I mean, I have my particular... I, rarely do I meet a cup of coffee that's prepared with love that I don't like. My wife is a huge Pete's uh, Major Dickinson. So uh, I have quite a bit of that. And really, uh, I, I love high quality half and half. Like that, that's the guilty pleasure. I mean, and sometimes cream. Uh, so together, that's just like a special treat for me all the time. I feel like I want to poke into this because it feels like a mm-hmm. learning opportunity for the listeners. How do you prepare coffee with love? If we were going to instruct someone in how to prepare their own coffee or tea with love, how would you tell them to do that? Uh, well, I get goosebumps. And, and this is very private. I just did too. <laughs> 
So first thing, obviously, you know, finding a coffee that you really like and, and understanding that there's all different types or, uh, and different roasts and, you know, everyone has their own particular. If I'm preparing for a group of people, I try and have a crowd pleaser. Uh, for myself, I like a medium roast. I, I usually go to where it's produced and ask them to grind it for me that day. Use it. I do not freeze it. I keep it out. I go through my coffee quickly. The most important thing to me is to bloom the grinds. So what I mean by that is uh, I, I use a type of pour over machine, which is not unlike the coffee machine that we use upstairs, where you can actually stop it from flowing. So I'll get the water at the right temperature. It shouldn't be like super, super hot. It should be boiling, boiling. What's a good temperature for water? Like 202 degrees if you want to be precise. And then you pour it over there just enough to soak the grinds. And you let that sit for about two minutes. And that releases all the oils in the... In the. Even if you have a pour over or you're using a thing, it's good. If you, and if you watch good baristas in the best coffee shops that they they're mindful of this then i pour and i let it steep for let's say about four minutes and then uh and then pour it into my coffee and and that you know the natural oils are able to be released um you'll actually see them on top of it they blend perfectly with the uh the killer half and half and uh it's robust and smooth that is a form of meditation for me in the morning. That that little ritual of the way I do that is is super important to my starting my day. So it feels like you wake the coffee up with the hot water, yes. and then how do you let it steep in a pour over? Well, the pour over that I have, but you can like you just pour enough in. You can put it on top of your cup, and let, so just a, maybe a half an inch of water goes out of it. Of the coffee goes out of it. Let it steep, and then do your pour over. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you pre... You, you do That's a the little, waking up part. The waking up part. And I'm going to tell you how particular I am. My wife brews her own coffee, of which I get the, the drag sometime, but I always make my own coffee. Well, like you said, this is a meditation for you, mm-hmm. and each part is deeply thought through. And I wonder how you understand the relationship between that kind of mindfulness and love like what's the correlation of that because you use the word love a lot love for me is felt in contentment it's like a faithful relationship for instance with coffee where i know where it's come from and i i know how I'm going to prepare it and I know what the outcome is going to be having done this so many times it fills me with a feeling which doesn't necessarily come from me but I can experience and to me that experience is love like you can say I love that cup of coffee it's done more than just provide a hot beverage well I love the idea I love the idea (laughs) that love is a verb Mm -hmm. and it also echoes back to that idea of trust. Mm, fully. That there's this idea of trust that if I do all these things in this way, then then I'll get this outcome that's fulfilling to me and trusting that process in the coffee making. Well, and so much about, about that is connecting with others. Like in the industry and in, in my private life with food, 
Um, I have developed incredible relationships with food artisans and farmers and ranchers and uh, my local grocer where I, I mean I can go in and tell me and I can just ask them say what is the best tangerine right now and they will and I trust them so that is such a core part of life I think is is having people that you can rely on and obviously that can spill outside of food like when we need advice or uh, or when we it's something that's really important that we get the right health care or whatever that we trust those people and then in that I actually that feeling of contentment the feeling like oh I'm doing the best I can to care for myself and in turn care for others that is love you know it really I love the idea of interdependence. We live in an intensely independent culture that's really focused on independence. And, you know, we often can go through our day, especially where we can order things now that we don't even have to interact with other people. And I think there's a lot of stress that we feel like we're all supposed to be experts in all these different areas. Mm -hmm. And you spoke to that earlier in developing a healthy community within the work environment of getting people that have expertise but i hear you really relying on that expertise of other people so that you don't have to know what the best tangerine is yes and that and honestly that's not my job Uh, i don't see it as my job the word that i like to use is that we're we're disconnected and i heard this this uh the story from a friend of mine who was uh invited school kids to his farm. This is down in, in Pie Ranch. And he asked one of the school, you know, where does meat come from? And the kid said, from the meat aisle. And to me, that is the, that's the disconnect. Uh, where we're, we're just in a place where, we're, and I can't speak for myself so much right now because I really try not to live in that world, but I can in certain realms. Uh, the idea that we can be independent, that we can isolate, to me that's a very luxuriating sin in the sense that that allows us and our egos to, to take over and then we're cut off from the actual source of love and happiness and contentment. And connection. Yeah, and, connection. you know, I know in my work that, that it's, it's become ever clear to me that that sense of disconnection is actually, I believe, the root of all human suffering. Mm. That that, I think it's what the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning of the Bible is about our trying to explain our idea of feeling disconnected from source. Right. And, you know, I love how you've talked about food as this just intrinsic everyday experience that if we live it mindfully shows us all these different ways that we are interconnected mm, and sure. how to do that with trust and i love this idea of of love in all these places that you talk about it with food you know growing up on a farm and you know my grandfather was a new york city banker and my father was a career military man turned insurance executive but both of them um if they had had their way would have been farmers Mm -hmm. and they both had you know very active working farms and growing up in that um environment 
the idea of like cultivating and my grandfather always said something about you know that life is truly like a garden and the more bounty the better and that includes weeds uh, and being aware of how things are and, and understanding that you know what we put our attention to whether it's uh, you know in a, if we're looking at a physical garden whether it's plants or the weeds or whether it's an animal you know that's what we cultivate and 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 he used that as a metaphor in life and i remember when i was first dating my wife and realizing that you know all the ways that i had sort of been courting her or we'd been developing a friendship weren't necessarily healthy and that if i looked at it in a different manner uh that that was how I could build a strong relationship. And it's not to say that it hasn't been rocky at times over the years and that I, I haven't acted out in self-will and been like a, a little tyrant. But I think that mentality that we share in a relationship has allowed many, many years of uh, both love and opportunities of growth. And, and I also see that in how I, how I look at my relationships in the workplace and with my friends. Um, you know, it's really about cultivation. It's about cultivating what we want. What a beautiful idea that what we focus on is what we cultivate. Mm-hmm. And that all gardens have weeds and what we do with them is part of the cultivation. Well, and it, I'm a huge advocate of biodynamic farming, and I, and I know this podcast isn't very long, so I won't go into the nitty-gritty, but from a biodynamic point of view, when you look at a garden and you don't see weeds, you know something is wrong. That the idea is to, is to build as much diversity in the microbial and plant life as possible, and that richness, which is good and bal- good and bad, often you know, there is what creates the balance, which creates the harmony. And when we try and rid the garden of the weeds and other things, we often cause great harm to the plant life that we want. It's about accepting all this stuff, keeping things in balance, and understanding that really uh, it's the earth, the greater wisdom of the universe that is doing the magic and we're just there to be guardians. James, it's been so great to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure, seriously. Thanks so much for being here today. Awesome. If you wanna book a session with me, I do in-person sessions in San Francisco and remote spiritual psychology sessions on FaceTime and Skype. You can shoot me an email at info at reneemckenna.com. You can also find my new book, Allies and Demons, Working with Spirit for Power and Healing on Amazon or on my website, also ReneeMcKenna.com. We'll be back next week with more from Spiritual Psychology. Bravo. James, thanks again. Oh, my pleasure.